Thank you for joining us today. This is Abendo Books, and you're listening to First Chapters. Today we're going to be looking at a book entitled The Untold Story of Jeremiah G. Hamilton, Wall Street's First Black Millionaire, Prince of Darkness by Shane White. Jeremiah Hamilton was a hard and ruthless businessman, the only black principal in New York's financial district. He had little choice about how he behaved if he wanted to succeed in beating the rather steep odds confronting him. These circumstances forced Hamilton to be at least as cavalier about such niceties as keeping within the law as any of his white contemporaries. Wall Street has never been a place for that faint of heart, but in the antebellum era, with remarkably few of any sort yet established, New York businessmen played hardball and, at least initially, sensing an easy mark, they lined up to play with Hamilton. The black broker, though, always returned what he had received and with interest. Unfortunately, if not surprisingly, no one ever thought to persevere any of Hamilton's ledgers or commercial records from these years. There are no surviving account books in which Hamilton or a clerk has scratched in which the quill pen of his hamdrum debits and credits material that a historian could exploit to reveal the everyday existence of this uncommon black broker. Instead, in this chapter, I want to use the newspapers and court records to unravel one complicated and fraught series of transactions that, although perhaps not typical, still might be able to suggest something in the way of Jeremiah... Hamilton and many of his white peers conducted business in the Gotham of the 1830s. Later on, James Gordon Bennett would state in the New York Herald that the case is one of the most singular in commercial morals which has come up for many years, but its beginnings were simple enough. Jonathan Leach and William B. Johnson were partners who owned the Sandusky, a steamboat they claimed was a good and valuable vessel worth the sum of $15,000, or slightly more than $3 million in today's currency. The bear had to liquidate what was their major asset, preferably for profit. Having heard that there were good prospects in Cuba for doing just that, they approached Benjamin Basden, a partner in Hernandez and Basden, merchants based in Mantanzas, who was residing temporarily in New York. He was well-connected, and his firm, one of the first mercantile houses in Cuba, and based on his local knowledge, he thought favorably of the proposition. Basden advanced the businessman $1,000 so they could afford to patch up the Sandusky and steam her down to New York from Salem. Potentially, if Leach and Johnson could sell her at in the Caribbean, everyone concerned would make a killing. There was even fanciful talk of a price of between $40,000 and $50,000, but it was also obvious that before that could happen, they had to spend a lot of money. Although the luggage for a later legal affidavit is clumsy, the message is clear enough. Repairs were necessary to be made on the said steamboat Sandusky and upon her tackle furniture and machinery as well as in order to fit her for the voyage to Cuba as to adapt her more completely to the uses for which she would be needed in the said island of Cuba and to particular navigation trade and necessities of said island. These modifications and improvements were going to cost at least a further $6,000. At this point, Hamilton entered the picture. 
although Basden already 1000 out of pocket was unable or unwilling to lend Leach and Johnson any more money he introduced them to his intimate friend Jeremiah Hamilton who decided to finance the deal after that Sandusky was rendered seaworthy the pair would sail her to Matanzas where Hernandez and Basden would arrange for the sale the Cuban firm would then invest the proceeds in coffee and sugar and co-sign the goods back to Hamilton in New York for him to sell. All of the commissions occurring from the operation were to be equally divided between Hamilton and his friends of the Curacuba house. Hamilton agreed to hand over four drafts totaling $6,000 and maturing at different dates. After he had made the initial payment of $2,500, the black broker began to hear stories about the character of his business partners, that Leach was an atheist, that the title to the Sandusky was not clear debt, and tried to walk away from the deal. Although Leach and Johnson, and more importantly his friend Basden, talked him into staying the course, things were never quite the same again. Tension was further exacerbated by the spiraling costs of repairing the steamboat and increasingly suspicion corroded relations between Hamilton and his New York partners. But the prospective profits were certainly attractive enough, and Hamilton carried on lending money. In November 1835, Leach and Johnson had a bill for $2,500 due at the West Point Foundry. Hamilton agreed to pay it if Leach and Johnson would repay him $3,000 in six months' time and then negotiated a discount with the foundry so they only paid him $2,300, potentially earning a 27% return on his six-month investment. Leach and Johnson paid a high price, though. For increasing and extending their line of credit, not only were they forced to agree to steep interest rates, but also an increasingly circumspect Hamilton demanded more and more security before advancing additional monies. The complicating factor here was the Great Fire on December 16, 1835, that burned down Leach and Johnson's store at 53 Front Street, incinerating all of their documentation of what had become a complicated series of transactions. Although they insisted Hamilton had copies of various agreements, he never directly answered anyone's query on that point. Another instant in which the black broker benefited from the Great Fire. By early 1836, Hamilton had advanced Leach and Johnson some $15,000 or in excess of $3 million in today's currency. <laughs> On the other side of the ledger, Hamilton was in possession of a bill of sale for the Sandusky, a carriage worth $250, an oil painting of Diana with bathing nymphs valued at $100, and an oil painting of the Holy Family valued at $500, and a French clock supposedly worth $400, all of which Mr. Harwood had left with Johnson to, to sell on commission and now wanted return, and deeds for a mansion house and a 15-acre farm in Stonington, Connecticut, a property that was mortgaged and whose ownership was contested by several people. As if this was not already a complex enough mess, an accident had befallen the Sandusky. Well, it seems to have fallen an accident, but one never quite knows with Hamilton's unlucky run of maritime mishaps. A cautious person would have thought long and hard before accompanying the black broker on the Brooklyn Ferry. Repairs to the Sandusky had been finished finally, and on December 14, 1835, the steamboat set off for Mantanzas. The following night, she was run into, or 
came into contact with a vessel or brig called the Tom Kringle, which by causality that said Steamboat Sandusky was so seriously injured and disabled that she was forced to put back for New York to repair and refit. At this point, Hamilton, the only person with any claimed entitled by paperwork, assumed control of the steamship, settled with a sea insurance company for 1500 compensation for the damages caused by the collision, money that he promptly pocketed himself. And as Leach and Johnson soon after discovered, was now suing the owners of the Tom Kringle for further recompense as well. After the collision with the Tom Kringle, no New York insurance company would underwrite the Sandusky's voyage to Mantanzas. Hamilton claimed that he could insure the vessel in Philadelphia and on better terms. But the truth of the matter was that a black man's welcome with underwriters had well and truly worn out. And that a Cuban sale of the steamboat, at least while he was associated with her, was unlikely. Hamilton had to acknowledge this fact. And... Indeed, the fresh modifications he had ordered made the vessel rendered her unfit for use in Cuba, further irritating Leach and Johnson. When Hamilton tried to auction the Sandusky locally in February 1836, Leach and Johnson took out an injunction and halted the sale. After a struggle, Hamilton succeeded in having the injunction lifted. And finally, in May 1836, a John Delafield bought the steamboat for $20,000. What is particularly fascinating about the unraveling of the agreement to sell the Sandusky is observing the way the participants relied on the legal systems to sort out their differences. Not that many antebellum businessmen were naive enough to conceive of a courts as an impartial arbiter. The law was more a tool to be used with litigants applying pressure, leverage, and money to influence the decision. As the economy grew in size and sophistication, as it seemed to be doing at an exceptional rate in the early 1830s, there was a concomitant explosion in the amount of the types of commercial litigation, complex transactions moving goods over large distances and transferring money from one financial center to another, often over a period of months, so easily fell apart. Occasionally, this was the result of problems that no one reasonably could have anticipated. But mostly, it was caused by fault of a too careless discounting of the risks involved. Any businessman engaged in New York's dynamically mushroomed mercantile and financial sector could expect at regular intervals to have his day in court, a fact that applied with at least equal force to the few African Americans managing to make their way in the city. Even though Thomas Downing was only a restaurateur, admittedly one with significant property holdings, I've managed to come across in the newspapers and legal archives some 15 instances between 1830 and 1860 in which he either sued someone or was himself sued. Every New York businessman needed a lawyer on retainer, and preferably a good one. When it came to the law, though, Jeremiah Hamilton was in a class of his own. The lawsuit became his chosen weapon. Hamilton has left a lasting impression on the historical record as a serial litigant. I've uncovered well in excess of 50 cases involving the black businessman suing or being sued. Over his near four decades of working in New York City, there were very few periods when Hamilton was not partially, or at least in one suit, meandering through the courts. Sometimes he won, sometimes he lost, but as a biographer of the similarity, similarity litigus 
litigious Cornelius Vanderbilt observed of the Commodore, even when the courts did not give satisfaction, legal action gave him leverage in negotiations. Hamilton creatively imagined the legal system as simply another feature of the financial terrain, an institution little different from the banks or insurance companies, and therefore, above all, to be exploited. If a deal disintegrated and the matter ended up in front of a judge, so be it. Far from panicking, Hamilton pursued the case vigorously, hiring the best legal talent, and usually he had a string of top lawyers available. This was how Hamilton and the new breed on Wall Street conducted business. By the second half of 1836, the situation between Hamilton and his erstwhile partners was at a stalemate. They had been in and out of court several times without resolving anything, and Leach and Johnson, with financial ruin pressing, appeared to have been outmaneuvered by the black broker. Sometimes he improvised, but something had to give, and Leach and Johnson decided to make a preemptive strike. On August 4, 1836, they had Hamilton charged with perjury, alleging that the black businessman had sworn to owning the steamboat Sandusky back in January 1836, although he knew this was to be incorrect. Perjury was not a common charge in the business world. When deals turn sour, most litigants prefer to use the more direct approach and rely on straightforward offenses such as larceny and conspiracy. But seemingly, at one time or another, every African-American who managed to achieve a measure of success downtown had to defend himself against the accusation that he had perjured himself. William Thompson, a black man for who was extremely successful in the 1830s, owned three blocks of land worth some $10,000 and who featured in chapter six, suffered this indignity in 1841. A decade later, James McCoon Smith, ruminating about this wealth problem among African-Americans, noticed that when Thomas Downing had successfully sued a businessman, the latter, in revenge, swore a complaint of perjury against him. As a black intellectual commented, this very case adds force to my sermon above in which he had argued that the pursuit of wealth without first seeking liberty was futile. Aggrieved whites, far more than a modicum of spite was involved as well, were using the accusation of perjury to, remi to remind prominent blacks of their status in New York. If the charge of perjury was unusual, the details of Hamilton's arrest were even more so. Mrs. Hummin and Merritt, police officers, were engaged. As a writer in the New York Times put it, to secure the businessman very late at night, likely this arrangement involved a backhander or favors of that some sort or another. At this time, the black broker was living outside of the city in Bloomingdale, in today's terms, above Central Park near Columbia University. The police arrested Hamilton at almost midnight and brought him downtown, refusing to allow him to communicate with anyone en route. Although, as the Times pointed out, he could have readily obtained bail from various quarters. Even at that hour of night, Hamilton and Merritt conveyed him directly to the watch house and locked him up in one of the cells. Leach and Johnson intended to ensure Hamilton had an unpleasant night and to humiliate the black man in as public fashion as possible. To this end, the vengeful pair had also contrived one more surprise for Hamilton. As the writer for the Times explained, a couple of days later, some person and little imagination was required to work out who was responsible, procured a paragraph to be put in two of the morning papers, satirizing what had been done to him with bold relief and to much of his prejudice. 
As soon as the billed Hamilton walked free, early the next morning, he discovered what had occurred only hours before had already made the papers. The piece in the Morning Courier in New York Inquirer recounted the arrest of a notorious character named Jeremiah G. Hamilton, commonly called the Black Prince of Darkness, who was well known in Wall Street where he had made several victims. It was a cunning ambush. What happened in the press in 1836 mattered in New York in a way that would not have even made a difference five years earlier. Few New Yorkers as yet were wholly aware of the changes being wrought in the wake of the invention of the penny press in 1833, but newspapers themselves were playing more of a role in the life of the city than they ever had before in its history. On this development, James Gordon Bennett was prescient. Commenting specifically on the embordello started by Leach and Johnson's charge of perjury and writing with an almost biblical cadence, the Herald's editor spelled out some of the implications for this transformation in two remarkable sentences. There is no law, no justice, no truth, no honor, no integrity, but what is in the newspapers. We are the bar, the pulpit, and the bench united. Exaggerated, perhaps. The courts were not totally under the sway of the press, but Bennett did recognize how the ground on which public life was played out had shifted decisively. It all started with Benjamin Day, born in 1810 in West Springfield, Massachusetts. The young man arrived in New York in 1830 and drifted from job to job, mostly as a compositor, working at the case, setting the type of the Journal of Commerce, the New York Evening Post and the six penny papers, they're almost a universal price. Although a stranger in town would have needed to make an effort to buy copies for six cents, as usually only printers sold individual issues, almost all sales occurred through annual subscriptions, each costing $10. In modern parlance, these newspapers were not reader-friendly. They consisted of four pages, one huge sheet folded in half, and were quite a bit larger than the today's New York Times, with nine or ten columns of tiny, often smudged print on each page. They are a handful to read. The only time I ever bother to wear my prescription glasses is in the New York Historical Society or the Library of Congress hunched over the cumbersome bound volumes of New York six-penny newspapers. Moreover, their content did not have a universal appeal. Most of the space in the dozen or so major New York newspapers was filled with advertisements, shipping news, financial news, international news and politics, and the anticipated readers were merchants, businessmen, politicians, and officials. Consequently, the best-selling newspaper in 1833 was The Courier, with a circulation of 4,500. The Journal of Commerce sold about 2,300 copies, and the Evening Post near 3,000 paltry figures in a city of almost quarter of a million people. In retrospect, it is different or difficult not to see the bitterness of the New York paper world of 1833. It was an antiquated system, ripe for challenge. On the face of it, though, Benjamin Day, an intriguing and neglected figure in New York's history, was far from being the most likely candidate to mount such a challenge. Good with his hands and practical, he delighted in fixing things and making ingenious mechanical toys for his children and grandchildren with the tools he kept upstairs. Day, usually for an editor and proprietor, was somebody who did not try to dominate the conversation, a man sparing with spoken word. One of his grandsons remembered affectionately the twinkle in his eye as he watched and listened to people, and that even with his old friends, Grandpa did little talking, but he was always interested sardonically in hearing what other men thought. 
that was the untold story of Jeremiah G. Hamilton, Wall Street's first black millionaire, Prince of Darkness. Thank you for listening.